Welcome back to the latest episode of the Eye on the Tigers podcast. I'm Dave Matter, St. Louis Post-Dispatch and STLToday.com, Zoo Athletics beat writer. We are joined by Post-Dispatch columnist Ben Fredrickson, uh, who was uh, now is suddenly covering an uh, interesting Cardinals team. Maybe take your eye off the football a little bit, but you're, you're back here to talk some Mizzou. I'm back from Boston, where uh, the Tigers had a very eventful game in Chestnut Hill against the uh, the Eagles from Boston College on Saturday. We're going to break all of that down, look forward to Tennessee, which is uh, Missouri getting back into SEC play on Saturday. We're going to visit with uh, an old colleague who is knows that Tennessee program really well, Blake Topmeyer, who is now an SEC columnist for the USA Today Network, but he's still based out of Knoxville and uh, we'll have plenty of insight into the Vols. But, but first, Ben, let's revisit this game on, on Saturday. It was, uh, I was just telling you before we hit record, it was one of those where I had to rewrite the beginning of my story about five times there in the last five minutes because that game took all kinds of wild turns. And uh, the, the last turn certainly did not work in Missouri's favor. Yeah, a rough trip to the great state of Massachusetts for, uh, <laughs> for, for the Tigers, Dave. And man, they had fun with that line from, from Eli Drinkwitz, didn't they? I, I had to give a little uh, calm down to the Mizzou fans uh, in my, my five things blog this week, because, you know, look, they love having this coach who fires off one-liners and, and the zingers. And I love it, man. As a, as a, as a writer, you love a coach who's willing to, to rock the boat a little bit. Eli Drinkwitz was a man of uh, SEC media days for, for kind of, um, you know, throwing some, some shots out at basically every coach, but Nick Saban, Dave, um, which he wisely avoided. But here's the thing: when you when you when you when you mix things up a little bit like that, sometimes you, you catch a little blowback, and and that's what happened here. Now, is it the reason Missouri lost to Boston College? Absolutely not. That would have to do with one of the worst rushing defenses in all of college football through four games, which I'm sure we'll talk about too. But Eli kind of made the comments about you know this isn't probably a game he would have loved to have scheduled, and and he tried to walk them back. And I don't think he was intentionally trying to create beef, but he may be a would have worded it a little differently if he would have gotten another swing at it. And Boston College did what you should do as an opponent. You latch on to it. You, you make it You make it bulletin board fodder. And it was pretty clear after the game, based off of the tweets and also the comments from Coach Halfley, that they did uh, they did use that to fire themselves up a little bit. Eli's going to own it, but the fans got to, too. I mean, you can't play it both ways. If you got a coach who likes to, uh, you know, get some memorable quotes out there, then sometimes they're not all going to work. So that was a little subplot, but most importantly, man, it's what we've been talking about, right? It's the run defense. It's, it's the defense in general, and it's not good. Um, you could, no matter how you slice it, they're giving up too many yards on the ground per game. They're giving up too many long runs of 10 plus yards. They're, they're down in the bottom of all national categories in those stats. And then we were talking about it a little bit earlier before we press record on this thing, then when a team goes play action, they're, they're open to that too. And, you know, the offense was okay. I, I thought it was one of more, one of Basilac's um, less impressive games, but uh, man, they're just going to have to be perfect offensively to cover up this defense. And they weren't perfect offensively. And this is what you get. Harrison Meavis tried to save the day. Um, he gets the gold star, but uh, it was pretty much what we said was going to happen. Boston college just ran it and ran it and ran it and then used the play action when that worked. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Bazelak was was pretty good outside of two throws. I mean, he's 30 for 41. 
just bad timing on both of them. The first interception right out of the gate, out of the second half, when Missouri had a chance to get a little momentum maybe, and uh, just a bad pass, just no other way about it. He had Barrett Bannister wide open and waited a little bit too long to pull the trigger. And then, you know, the one in, in overtime, uh, Missouri's first play, I, talking to him afterwards, and, and Connor didn't have a whole lot to say, and Eli didn't – he never is going to hang his quarterback out to dry. He blamed himself, not not Connor, which he will always do when it comes to the quarterback. Um, didn't learn a whole lot. But, but watching it, looking into the numbers a little bit, uh, they were really abusing that cornerback all day long. He, they targeted him, I think, seven times for six receptions. Kiki Chisholm had – four of his catches against that corner. He had about a five inch height advantage on him. Missouri went for the kill shot. And that's not uncommon when you're the road team in overtime, you want to get it over with as fast as you can uh, take the crowd out of it. And they believed in, in that play clearly uh, that they thought they could at least kind of have a jump ball there and that Chisholm would be able to win it. Worst case scenario, he knocks it down and uh, you live to see another down. Because uh, even Bazelak even said afterwards, hey, we already decided we were going for two if we scored the touchdown. So that just showed the mentality there, which I like. And, and, I do too. And, and, and you know, just uh, as, a, as a way to approach it, it's, hey, it's, we have zero faith in our defense. We don't want to extend <laughs> this game to two and three and four overtimes. Let's get it over with. But the execution just wasn't there. And unfortunately, that's the last, you know, that's the last kind of thing you think of when you think of that game. But it was lost much earlier. I mean, Mizzou marches down the field, scores the first touchdown, zero resistance from BC's defense. And then very first play of the game for Boston College, instead of using their strengths to run the ball, they try to throw deep. And Sean Robinson makes a great play on the ball and gets his second career interception for a guy who's only played defense for five games now. Uh, you think, okay, here it is. Chance to go up 14 nothing. That's the first thing Drinkwood said after the game was. He's like, what a blown opportunity, basically, because you can steal momentum there. It was a late arriving crowd. I'll say this for the Boston College crowd. It was late arriving, but once they got there, they showed up and it was loud. I mean, it was, it sounded and felt louder than 44, 45,000. Those students were really into it. They sit in one end zone there. Um, they were jacked the whole time. And, and I'm, I don't know if the crowd had anything to do with, you know, the outcome. Um, because again, Connor Bazelak isn't really used to playing in front of big crowds. He did at Kentucky a couple of weeks ago, but he doesn't have much experience doing that in a game that's still competitive. And I, I don't think that was a factor, but, you know, that it was uh, just nothing went right for them, you know, other than what they tried to do offensively. And again, like you said, they just, they weren't good enough on that side of the ball to what the level they have to be to overcome this defense. Yeah. And that's kind of, you're asking a lot of the offense to do that, but that's really kind of the spot they're in. Uh, there were some good things. I mean, that, that play, the drive to, to score the game winning field goal was amazing. Um, and we really yeah. executed well and, Harrison Beavis, what a weapon he is, 56 yards, and he makes it look easy. He's totally confident. I mean, that's a he's as locked in as a kicker as you're going to find in college football. So that was really, really a good drive. And you think, okay, and I'm with you, man, go for two if you score because you can't trust this defense right now. I thought there were kind of shades of the, um, of the LSU game. Yeah. Um, last year where Drinkwitz doesn't, you know, he, he kind of bet on the defense there late. He wasn't looking to burn all of his timeouts. He didn't call the old, let him, let him score play where it probably would have been justified. And, uh, you know, and it ended up working, not the defense worked, but they had enough time left to go tie the game with a field goal, but you know, the defense and you learned it in the fourth quarter, you can't trust it. You know, at LSU, against the LSU game last year, 
he bet on it. And I thought it was a big moment for that team. You know, the defense had had a terrible game. It came up big late. Doesn't happen this time. And now you wonder, like, is he going to have to start calling games with a distrust of his defense? It would probably be wise um, until you get evidence otherwise that you that you don't need to. And I know everybody's fired up about new defensive coordinator Steve Wilkes, but here's the thing. Eli hired Wilkes. Um, this yeah. was not a D.C. he inherited. And, and I don't know that there's a scheme out there that's going to make guys make tackles or make guys get penetration. Um, I think this is a player thing. Um, they're going to have to find some way to be more physical, to be more disruptive, to be more technically sound. I think, you know, no one's talked about talked about the name because it's so new, but, you know, we asked Eli Drinkwitz this off season, Hey man, how big of, how big of a unit is this off? Is this defensive line going to be for you? Cause he went out and hired a new defensive line coach too. And Jethro Franklin. And that's been, you know, there've been times where the linebackers have not looked SEC caliber. And I think that thing will probably continue, but to me, it's the defensive line because they, that was supposed to be a strength for this team. The depth there, we heard on and on about how disruptive it was going to be, how many guys they were going to send through there, and we're just not seeing it. We're seeing guys get blown off the ball. We're seeing big holes. We're seeing big holes open up. It seems like every tackle that made is has the Missouri player falling the opposite way. You know, every running back who get, gets three extra yards on the tackle or receiving, mean, they're just they're getting pushed around too much. And if you're getting pushed around by Boston College, and it's not an insult to Boston College, you're going to have a hard time. With bigger, yeah. more physical backs and linemen in, in the SEC. But when I saw, you know, what Pat Garwell was doing to, to some of these other teams, I said, this is going to be, a, this guy's going to be a load for them because he's a little bowling ball of a back and he runs hard. And what did he do? He carried it 25 times for 175 yards. He averaged seven yards a carry, scored two touchdowns and, and, and took one for 67. Um, that's, that's hard to stop. And, and if you're, Tennessee or whoever's left and you have a running back who you feel like can can run hard then I'm leaning on that guy before I do anything else and more teams should use that game plan against this defense until it proves it can do something yeah just very little disruption from this defensive line Isaiah McGuire got in there a few times thought Martez Manuel was more active than he has been uh, was kind of flying all over the place and, and saved them a few times from giving up some longer plays but just not seeing it enough. I, I, I get asked this a lot. Like, how come all the other SEC teams have these defensive tackles who are 300 pounds plus? Missouri's are all, like, in the 280s. I think it's a fair acknowledgement. Now, not every team plays a four-man front. Sometimes they play the three-man front, and those tackles are usually bigger because uh, they have to set the edges or the, the edge the end guys do, and they're not necessarily just pass rushers. But Missouri's D-tackles, man. Kobe Whiteside, Keel Byers. They didn't have Darius Robinson in this game. He was hurt, but and they're just not they're just not getting it done. Those those gaps are just way too big, and it just puts so much pressure on everybody else behind them. And we know they don't have Nick Bolton back there. Uh, a guy they really miss. Missouri fans are going to hate hearing this. Is Trey Williams? Just happened to be the SEC Defensive Lineman of the Week. He leads. He's Arkansas now. Now this is his third school since or second school since leaving Missouri. He left Missouri middle of last year. Went in the portal transferred to Houston, and then resurfaced at Arkansas, reunited with Barry Odom. He leads the SEC. If you look at pro football focuses stats, he leads the SEC, the entire league in pressures with, with 21. I don't think anybody at Missouri has more than 13. Uh, he is getting in the backfield. He's causing disruption. He's a good run-stopping defensive end, basically exactly what this team doesn't have. So that just kind of adds some 
insult to injury there when, when one of your former guys is, is doing something really well for Arkansas. I, I thought another topic to bring up, and I wrote about this a little bit Monday. I didn't, didn't touch on as much at the game. I think it's fair to second guess, fair to look back at some of the, the clock management for, for Drinkwitz. For one, at halftime, uh, they get a sack. Missouri does and forces fourth and I think, 19 with a minute to go. And Missouri had a timeout and didn't call it. Um, and Jeff Halfley, uh, the Boston College coach after the game, was like shocked that Missouri didn't call a timeout because he said, I saw what their offense was doing. They were moving up and down the field. Uh, he, so he was very surprised. What what'd they do, uh, they let it run out and um, kicked a field goal and got a little momentum for themselves. So a little curious offensive mind and coach didn't want to take that timeout, you know, force him to punt or force him to try the conversion, long conversion, get the ball back. And then this, and then late in the second half, Bazelak uh, had like a two-yard scramble on that, on that go-ahead drive. And there was a little contact when he slid. And Drinkwitz called a timeout. And we were, we were explained in the press box, I guess over the PA they were too, that he called the timeout to have it reviewed for targeting. Well, you don't have to do that because there's a target official or there's a replay official in the booth that watches those plays to look for targeting. So you don't see that in college football anymore where you have to call a timeout to request a review. And it wasn't really close to targeting either. So I don't know. I thought that was, you take a gamble there. Uh, best case scenario, you get a 15 yard penalty out of it and the players ejected, but Missouri wasn't really having trouble moving the ball at that point. So that's, that's a squandered timeout. And then again, on, on the touchdown drive Boston college had in the last minute, uh, BC lined up for a play had called a timeout after the previous play is set to go. And then Missouri called a timeout after a timeout and they changed personnel. They did. They replaced Chris Abrams drain with Sean Robinson. Um, I don't know if that was just strictly, they didn't like the look they were getting or what, but those are really precious timeouts to have. And you only had one on the final drive. If you had a couple more, maybe you had a little more time to get a little closer. Now, granted, it was still going to have to be either a long, long pass or a long field goal. But, and then another play that worked against Missouri, I thought big time, was the offensive goal, the offensive face mask. Uh, the running back gets, it goes down the sideline, reaches back and grabs Ennis Rakestraw's face mask. It pushed Boston College back. And if anything, it took them longer to score. Had they just scored after that, Missouri could have had like a minute left on that final drive and then go for a touchdown instead of having to tie the game with a field goal. So all those kind of things are easy to look back and second guess, you know, after the fact, not in real time. But um, I, I think it's fair to ask, hey, hey is this the way you – would have approached this if you had it all over again. Yeah, you kind of made – I was wondering if they maybe go with the Olay defense where you yeah. kind of just let them in. Now, that's a tough call to make in game four. Right. I mean, you're right. basically telling your defense at that point that you that, that they shouldn't even be out there. And, and I think if, as a coach, you're probably trying to make decisions in game four that, yeah. that lead you to where you want to go. You know, you don't coach game four like you do – you know, a chance to secure a winning season later. Right. Um, so you, it's a good way to lose your defense if you're, yes, if you're telling them to let a guy in to score, um, you know, in game four of the season. So I try to be mindful of that. Uh, great points on, on all those kind of head-scratching decisions. Um, or maybe not, maybe head-scratching is too strong, but curious ones. I thought, the, I thought the, the strike down the field in overtime was understandable. Um, I questioned a little bit, in overtime, not trying to get the ball in the hands of Tyler Beatty once before you yeah. before you go that route, 
And, and I think ultimately that's on base. Like you can't throw that ball. Um, you got to, you got to throw it away or, or, or check down. I mean, there, that guy was triple covered and, and it wasn't a very good throw. And, and he doesn't, you know, his strength so far has been that he hasn't made too many throws like that. Some of the interceptions he's had, you kind of go, okay, you can see how it happened. That was, that wasn't a good throw. And, you know, I know a lot of folks watching on TV as, as I was, you know, you, you see that. And then you, the next shot, and, and this is probably, this is the, the oddity of, of seeing game on, on TV and not in person. The next shot you see, you see um, Basilak and some guy from Boston College just kind of hanging out on, at midfield, talking, yucking it up. And I'm sure they were catching up and probably knew each other yeah. somehow. But the, the, just, the, just, the juxtaposition, Basilak throwing the game, losing touchdown, and, uh, and all of a sudden, um, you know, all of a sudden there's, there's him kind of have, holding court. It didn't look good. It just looked, it looked odd. And then obviously it was, it was either, it was, it was misleading or I don't know what it was. It was strange, but then all of a sudden he's so distraught and, 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 and obviously devastated in the post-game press conference. It was just a weird, uh, it was just a weird thing. It was, it was yeah. strange. To see. It was, a, I thought it was a strange throw from him. And then kind of a strange reaction, but clearly something changed between that point and the time he was in the interview room. I went, I went back and watched that, and he he was walking off the field, and Beatty had his head around Connor, like consoling him. And then that was Phil Jerkovic, the injured Boston College quarterback. I think they knew each other from the Manning camp this summer. And I watched it, and it looked like Phil reached out and said, hey, Connor, good game, and shook his hand. And I, I think it was – I just say this was good sportsmanship on the BC quarterback's part. Um, you know, and th- at that point also – those students were rushing the field and it was mayhem. Like, I don't think anybody knew what was really going on. And, you know, Connor, we, we talked to him about five minutes later and he was, he was really down and he was distraught. He was angry. He was angry at himself for, for that, that ball. Um, so I don't, I don't want to make too much of it. I think the guy was being friendly. It was the injured quarterback and just, I don't, yeah, I don't want, I just wanted to, I wanted your thoughts on it. Cause I, it, it did look odd when you just yeah. saw it, you know, the blips of it and it didn't, it seemed out of character for him. So that's why yeah. I, I wanted to kind of see, see what you had, what you had seen from there. Cause I know people are probably going to be wondering about it, but I mean, this is a guy who, who, and I don't, I'm out of the mindset where like when you lose a game, you have to like throw your helmet and go punch yeah. somebody <laughs> at all. I just, it, it looked weird. So it's, it, the backstory there is, is helpful. Um, but it was pretty clear listening to Drinkwitz afterwards that, that they felt like they got punched in the mouth here. Yeah, kind of strange. I mean, they've got these these two losses now to Kentucky and BC, which are close losses, but they don't they don't feel close. You know, the, the score is right there. And when you look back at this seasons from now, you're going to go, those were close losses. But I, I think it's maybe because of how um, pushed around the defense has looked that they they don't seem to feel as close as they have been. I mean, you got to close loss at Kentucky and in an overtime, an overtime loss on the road at BC. And, but they don't feel like that really. Here's why it feels different because last year, Missouri's five and five, all five losses were over by the start of the third quarter. Tennessee never had a shot in the fourth quarter, Georgia, no way, Alabama, no way, Mississippi state, that end of the year game, they were playing catch up from the start. And then what was the other loss? It was, uh, I can't even think right now. Whatever it was, it wasn't close. Um, and every and most wins were really close, narrow games. So Missouri hasn't been in this position you know, um, under Drinkwitz where 
you're just looking back at a one or two plays as being the difference in a close loss. So I, I think it's just a different feeling. Sometimes it's just the law of averages. You, you win a bunch of close games and at some point you're probably going to lose some close games. That, Arkansas is on the other side of that right now. They had a lot of close losses last year. Now they've learned how to finish. So um, yeah, I, I, this one felt different than Kentucky because Kentucky kind of felt like us, how is Missouri still in this game? You know, cause they had the two gift turnovers this one. I mean, when you go to overtime, it's, it's right there. I mean, this was a one or two possession game the entire time and Missouri never fell out of this one. Um, but certainly didn't finish well. What has to happen with this defense? I mean, and how much better can it get? I mean, I know defenses can get better over the course of the season, but I'm to the point where I'm like, did they go get the linebacker from Ohio State who got kicked off the team for throwing a temper tantrum on the sidelines? Like, I don't know what has to – what can change, really. They're not going to come up with new players. Right. They're not going to drastically change their scheme. I think Drinkwitz has to now start probably managing the game and calling plays in ways that he doesn't trust his defense. Um, you've got to get more out of the offense. You have to stop turning the ball over. Um, the offense does because you're not going – with this defense, you're not going to turn the ball over twice and win very often. Right. Especially right. especially not on the road against a team that, that can put one foot in front of the others. So is it is it how Drinkwitz responds, what he asks out of his offense, getting more aggressive with shots the offense takes? Because I don't know that – I mean, I think there's probably a higher ceiling for this defense, Dave, but I don't know that it's – I don't know that it's going to be exponentially higher. Well, How much I mean, better can, can do you just go really methodical on offense and bleed the clock, run the ball, dink and dunk, and do everything you can to keep your defense off the field and, and in a sense, keep the other team's offense off the field? I, I don't know. Is, is this team built for that? Um, they're only playing one running back right now. It's Tyler Beatty and nobody else. He had 62 snaps the other day. Nobody else at running back had more than three. Um, so it's, it's all Tyler Beatty, much like last year, it was mostly all Larry Roundtree. So that's the approach right now. Um, you know, didn't get much out of the young receivers in this game. Love it. Mookie Cooper. I, I don't know what's going on there. He played six snaps and after the game is posted on Instagram, that sure would be nice if I could play some wide receiver. Um, uh Oh, that's uh, not a good sign. So I don't at know. Least he didn't, at least he didn't quit on the sideline like like like, a, like another player. He was, who was, he was on the sideline, just not doing anything there. Um, you know, they're they're wasting this great tandem, really three guys in the kicking game. Grant McKinnis has been really good at punter. Obviously, Mevis is a monster at kicker. Sean Ketting is the kickoff guy. All he does is just boot uh, touchbacks every single time. I mean, he's a machine. Speaking of, he boots a, a touchback on the last kickoff of the regulation and Missouri still gets a 15 yard penalty on it. Jamie Petway line backup linebacker. How do you do that? You're just going to give Boston college a ball in the 40 by, by something dumb on a touchback. That's actually required. They've done a good job of avoiding the most stupid penalties. They have. Yeah. That was a bad example. That was a bad timing for that one. Really bad. Uh, so yeah, I don't know if you change things on offense, um, defensively, do you just start selling out and going for takeaways? They blitzed a ton on, on Saturday. Um, I think that's kind of the direction they're leaning. You got to stack the box and make them throw over the top and tell your corners to not get burned and try to bet, bet big on pick and pat. I mean, it's not a sound approach, but no. you have to make someone beat you with the pass you can't just keep giving up six, seven yards per carry. I mean, or no one will throw. I mean, no yeah. one who can run will throw because you, because they don't have to, 
I mean, that's a much better way to win is just hand off the ball time and time again. And I'm not good at math, but you do it twice against this team, you got a first down. Yeah. So something's well, going to have to change. It's a good transition because a team and a coach defined by offense are coming to Columbia this week in Tennessee under Josh Heupel in his first year. Not a great start for the Vols, uh, which I think most people probably expected. They just don't have much right now. I mean, they lost pretty much half their roster to the transfer portal, and it wasn't a great roster anyway. Um, they're going to probably be worse before they get better because they've got some NCAA sanctions probably coming down the pike. Uh, they've got quarterback issues. They started the year with Joe Milton, the, the Michigan guy who just tries to throw it out of the stadium every time he drops back. He was hurt. Um, Hendon Hooker, the Virginia Tech transfer, came in and played Saturday. He's got some injury issues. I don't think it's – Heupel talked earlier Monday. I don't think it's a concussion, but he seems, uh, you know, unclear on who's going to play quarterback. They've got an injury at running back. Offensively, their numbers are not very good. Uh, here's a shocker. They're last in the SEC, 129th in the country in time of possession. You never would have thought that with a Josh Heupel offense. Sounds familiar. Uh, yeah. So, you know, here's a chance. Get Missouri can get off defense off the field. They won't be on it very much against this, uh, this offense. They've allowed the most sacks in the SEC quarterback rating as a team is way down. Uh, they're just okay defensively, nothing special. So very winnable game for Missouri. But if you're Tennessee, you're looking at this like, okay, winnable game for us too. I mean, somebody's got to get somebody's got to get off the schneid here and win an SEC game. Um, the good thing is Tennessee is not a top fifth, not quite a top fifty um, rushing team so far this season. Yeah. So maybe their maybe their run game won't be quite as potent. But as much as Heupel loves to throw it and loves to uh, either go touchdown or three and out, this might be a, a good game for him to consider a different approach. Maybe. Right. Um, maybe being a little more conservative. Yeah, maybe, you know. Maybe seeing if they can get their ground game established a little bit because right. I tell you what, if, if you have a drive against this team, this Missouri defense right now, that includes three passes and no run. If you, if you have a drive that ends with a punt before you run, run the ball, then you're an idiot. I'll just <laughs> I mean, just, just let's just be honest. I mean, Missouri has allowed more, more runs of 10-plus yards than Kansas through four games, okay? If you're not taking the opportunity to run the ball against this defense until they tell you they can stop it, then you need to be fired as a coach, as an offensive coordinator. I mean, it's not it's not rocket science what you need to do against this team until it proves it can stop it. And one of the things college football coaches are getting worse and worse at, and I, I do think Eli can, can be victim of this sometimes, they really make things too complicated. They, yeah. they feel the need to, to, you know, every run has to be to the short side of the field. Every Every, every, you know, you have to, you have to put in a jet sweep when a simple handoff, you know, up the middle might get the job done. Sometimes you just have to look at what a team can't do and, and do that and then do it again and then do it again and do it again. And unless, unless they find a way to stop it, keep doing it. It right. doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be advanced physics. And Josh Heupel would really be, would really be mistaken to, to not take what other teams have done against the, the Tigers and factored into how they're going to attack. Yeah, it if was. He doesn't have a running back who can run against this defense, and his recruiting screwed up. <laughs> I'm yeah. sorry. I mean, I'm trying. I'm not, I'm, right. And I don't think it's all doom and gloom. Like, I mean, the fact that they've had their their losses have been very close, and their defense has been has been this bad, Dave. I think it's actually kind of encouraging. Right. And they they. It's not an exaggeration. They have one of, if not the worst rushing defenses in the country right now. Oh yeah. I, I think I think Ohio is the only team that is not Ohio State. Ohio. 
Right. And, and then, you know, you're down there with the Kansas and you're making Vanderbilt's run defense look stout, then it could be way worse in terms of yeah. outcomes and record. But my God, you'd have to think smart opponents are going to look at that and formulate a, an attack accordingly. Well, and, and BC didn't get fancy. And I saw Jeff Halfley said after the game, he's like, we only really ran two plays all day. They're just out of different formations. Um, smart. The, the only time they got in trouble was when Missouri would get a stop on first down and then they were just they felt obligated to throw and that's when Steve Wilkes brought pressure nobody wants to give him any credit because it, obviously this defense is a mess but he brought brought pressure second and third down and then they're looking at fourth and long so that was the recipe but you got to get the stop on first down and you know nine times out of ten they don't yeah that's you're absolutely right and that that's what Missouri's defense I think should should focus on I mean pull up the numbers here's what we do when we when we hold them to two yards two, three yards on first down, we, we're, yeah. we're solid. We get off the field and maybe that's something they can, they can rally around. They're going to have to be at best of one of those bend don't break defenses. Right. But if they can get there, then with this offense, they could be all right. They'll win some games, but yeah. we haven't seen, we haven't seen many signs. Yeah. An average defense would make a big difference for this team that has oh, specialists that are really good and, and an offense that can be pretty good on most weeks. And I think they got some ball Hawks. They got some guys who can pick off some passes. And, you know, that's a huge thing. Some teams don't have that. They cannot create turnovers. These guys seem to have some, some dudes in the secondary who can, who can make some plays, but you got to get the ball in the air before you can take right. advantage of that. Right. Well, the season is one-third complete, a lot of football left. Start with Tennessee. And this, uh, I think this has a chance to be a, not necessarily a, a good game in terms of being aesthetically pleasing, but a competitive close game. And because uh, I think these teams are fairly evenly matched. Missouri should be ahead of Tennessee just as far as a program being built. Um, but we'll learn a little bit more about the Vols from, from our friend Blake here. I'm excited to hear from Blake, except he gets thinner every time I see him. He's like a runner now. He went to Knoxville and got in shape. I went to Knoxville and gained like 50 pounds. So I got to figure that out. But looking forward to hearing from Blake, uh, a former, uh, former media friend of ours and uh, uh, columnist, SEC columnist for the Knoxville News Sentinel. All right, now we're joined by Blake Topmeyer. He uh, knows the SEC as well as anybody. Blake, your, your formal title these days, SEC columnist for the USA Today Network, but, but Blake is uh, based out of Knoxville. He's seen a couple of Tennessee games in person this year, knows that program inside and out. Uh, for you Mizzou fans, you, you definitely know Blake's name. He was the Tigers beat writer for, for how many years did you, four years? Yeah, I was in Columbia for four years. Uh -huh. Yeah, that's right, at the Columbia Tribune. Um, and uh, then became the, the Vols beat writer in Knoxville. And, and now what's it been since since the spring, since March, that you, you became this columnist at large? Yeah, I covered Tennessee for four seasons. And it's kind of interesting. I covered one bowl game, two coaching searches, and two AD changes. And I don't know if that's what it was or what, but uh, something something got me off that beat. Maybe maybe it was uh, those coaching changes and the AD <laughs> changes. I don't know what it was. But, yeah, uh, yeah I guess like – <laughs> that's like a Mizzou one. run there I mean no doubt it kind of made me think of that at, t at times yeah. it's like it almost feels like you're back covering Mizzou again yeah some of the same people too yeah you never know um, that's true <laughs> all right so give us a feel what why, where is this Tennessee team right now I mean they're two and two we know that first year coach Josh Heupel um, how is it going is it better than the record looks is it worse what do you make of this team so far yeah, I mean, I think the, the record is pretty spot on. Coming into the season, I really felt like that Pittsburgh game was kind of a swing game that that could go a long way in determining 
whether Tennessee would make a bowl. And then sure enough, that was a really close game. Tennessee lost it by a touchdown. Um, you know, if they would have had better quarterback play, I think they could have won that. Their defense kind of came and went in stretches. And that's really been sort of the narrative of the season, I think. Like, at times, Tennessee, I think, has looked better than I would expect considering what Josh Heupel stepped into. Like, I was here for Jeremy Pruitt's first season. Uh, well, I was here for Butch Jones's last season and, and saw what was left behind for Pruitt. And, and now, in comparing that to what was left behind for Heupel, like, this is worse. Uh, I'm not saying Butch Jones left the, the cupboard fully stocked, for Jeremy Pruitt, but it wasn't totally barren. Uh, what Josh Heupel stepped into, one, with the ongoing NCAA investigation uh, that was left behind by this previous coaching staff, and two, just with the depletion of talent and depth through a lot of transfers after that coaching change. I mean, he stepped into a really hard situation, and, and I think at times, I feel like he's, he's sort of exceeding the bar, um, and then at other times, you can see the, the lack of depth and and some of the warts that uh, I think we expected to show on this team. Yeah. Just looking at some of their numbers. I mean, they don't, they don't really look like a typical hypo offense. And I'm sure a lot of that's just personnel. And you've already, they've already gone through a couple quarterbacks, um, not really putting up a lot of yards. I think they're 12th in the league in yards per play. Quarterback rating is way down. I think they lead the league in sacks allowed. One very signature Josh Heupel stat, Mizzou fans won't be surprised with their last in the league in time of possession, uh, yeah. second to last in the country. Um, that's probably the best news for Missouri's defense. They, they may not be on the field very much. Um, what do you make of who this team is on the field so far? Is it even close to what, you know, Heupel envisions eventually having? I don't think it's, it's anywhere close to it, no. I mean, I think, you know, one thing that gets lost about Josh Heupel's offense is, a lot of times we, we always think about, um, you know, the downfield passing and the quarterback right. development and all that. But, um, and, and, you know, this Dave, obviously as, as well as I do, like he's had some pretty good offensive lines throughout yeah. his, his time. I mean, there at Missouri, I thought he really got that offensive line playing uh, pretty well, pretty fast. He did the same thing at, at UCF. That was a pretty good offensive line. Um, and we just, we haven't seen that at Tennessee. I think that's really holding this offense back. And, and on top of that, the quarterback play, I mean, there's been so many times where Tennessee's receivers have been open downfield, mm -hmm. and whether it be Joe Milton or Hendon Hooker, uh, you know, both, both quarterbacks have just been overshooting their targets time and again. And so it's kind of been like a, a 180 from the Jeremy Pruitt era in a way in that, like, Pruitt's offense was very risk-adverse. Um, you know, he, he, was, he was terrified of turnovers, pretty conservative, pretty pro-style. Um, like schematically, I think this is sort of what you would maybe expect from a hypo system. It's, it's not as fast as up-tempo as the offense was when it was really humming there at Missouri, but it's, it's still a pretty quick pace. Uh, but I just don't feel like his, his offensive line and his quarterback play right now uh, is where he needs it to be for this offense to, to really flourish, I think, the way that it, that it can whenever hypo has the pieces. Yeah, people always think of him and associate him with, you know, those quarterbacks at Oklahoma and then the prolific Drew Locke numbers, but they forget, and the, a great point you bring up, I mean, Ish Witter was a thousand-yard yeah. rusher <laughs> under him. I mean, Damari Crockett got his start under him. Like, they will run the ball if that's if, – if the numbers are right in the box, Hypo will run the ball all day long on you. And uh, if the if the line is, is a good line and he's got the backs to do it, they don't even have to be a super talented NFL running back. He's been able to produce that 
but it just seems like, yeah, maybe the pieces just aren't in place yet. Um, what, what is the quarterback situation from what you understand? I mean, Milton was on the depth chart this week, but hooker, you know, has been playing lately. Uh, I guess hooker got banged up a little bit at Florida. What, where he, things stand? He did. Yeah. Hooker took a, a took a shot at, at Florida and exited that game in the second half with an injury. And so they went to Joe Milton who had lost his starting job because he got injured uh, in the week two game. And so, yeah, I mean, it might be a case of whichever, whichever one of those two guys they feel like is healthiest is, is the one who starts. I think if both are a hundred percent, I think you'd have to lean toward him and hooker because in seeing basically about two games worth of Joe Milton uh, between the game and a half to start the season before his injury. And then the second half against Florida, and then we've seen about two and a half games of Hinn and Hooker. Neither one of them has been great, but Hooker's been better. It feels like Hooker, he has that maybe the lower, excuse me, the higher floor. Like I, I think you know, he's an experienced guy, started 15 games at Virginia Tech. And I don't think things are just going to get disastrous under Hinn and Hooker. I, I think he's got, you know, kind of a limited ceiling. Uh, I think that's why he transferred from Virginia Tech to, to Tennessee. But He's a guy that I think more so you, you know a little bit of what you're going to get. He runs it pretty well. Both these guys can run, but I think, I think Hooker's more of a fluid, more of a natural dual threat guy uh, than what Joe Milton is. And, you know, I, I think just as a passer, Hooker's, he's missed some of those deep shots too, but play to play, I think he's been a little bit more consistent. With Joe Milton, I mean, you, you can just, you can see why one coaching staff after another is tempted by this guy. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he went to Michigan, was a part, part-time starter there last year. Josh Heupel actually recruited him when he was on staff at Missouri. Uh, so, I mean, a lot of coaches have been interested in this guy and he's, he's got the huge arm, but man, he just, he, he can't put it on the mark when he throws it downfield. He's been missing guys by five yards. So, you know, that big arm coaches can fall in love with sometimes. Um, and, and we know, you know, from when Heupel was at Missouri, uh, he, he loved dialing up those deep shots with Drew Locke, but right. the deep shots only work if you can put them on the money, and, and Joe Milton hasn't been doing that. And so all things considered, I think Hooker's the better option if he's healthy, uh, but you know, after taking, taking a pretty good lick there at, at Florida, Joe Milton might have to be the guy if, if Hooker can't go. Well, if either of them can turn around and hand the ball off to a functional division one running back, then they should give Missouri some problems with this <laughs> way this rush defense has played here through the first month of the season. Uh, what about Tennessee defensively? Just looking at their numbers, they're, they're okay. They're not really good at anything. They're not terrible at anything so far. They just, just kind of average. Pretty much. And, and I would say average is actually better than what I expected them yeah. to be this season. I, I think when you look at what was left behind for Heupel here in year one, I, I thought he inherited a little bit better of collection of talent on offense than he did on defense. I, I, I thought the defense was just a mess. Uh, I mean, yeah. it was like, you know, it's like that scene out of major league. Uh, I can't remember who utters the line, but they say, who are these guys? You know, <laughs> and that's kind of like what it is when you look out at Tennessee's defense, like you, you have some six year guys who are, who are literally on their third head coach, like they're, they're left over from the Butch Jones era. I mean, Tennessee's leading tackler, Theo Jackson, he, he, he goes back to the Butch Jones era. He's, he's been around forever. Like he's, he's never really been a high-level player up until this year, and, and here he is as, as Tennessee's nickelback this season, leads the team in tackles. Um, you got a bunch of just like, um, you know, kind of journeymen on, on the defensive line, a lot of transfers there. Uh, their linebackers, 
know, Jeremy Banks is a converted running back. Aaron Beasley, who plays quite a bit at linebacker, is a converted safety. So it's really just this wow. co- collection of, of, yeah, I mean, real just journeymen and, and misfits, I guess, that are um, sort of holding it together. And, and to their credit, like I said, at times, I feel like they've played a little bit, a little bit better than maybe I would have expected. And I mean, you know, I mean, they went out and made a game of it against Florida last weekend for a half, uh, you know, we're only trailing 17, 14 at, at halftime. And I, I thought, um, you know, played reasonably well. And then Florida picked them apart pretty good in the second yeah. half. So, um, yeah, I mean, I don't think it's an overwhelmingly talented uh, unit really at, at any level of the defense, frankly. Yeah. Let's talk about Josh Hypo a little bit. Um, I don't pretend to know him. I'm not sure anybody really knows him that well in the media, you know, covered him for a couple of years. Uh, I was like Josh. Uh, I was wanted to know him better, but he kind of um, doesn't really let people in too closely. I think that's kind of, at least when he was a coordinator at Missouri, and I think that was kind of the case when he was at Oklahoma too. Um, I think the questions when he got this job at Tennessee were, is, is he the right personality fit for a job that big with such a humongous fan base and such high expectations and such a grand following? Um how has that part of the job, how has he handled that? Is he, has he fit in naturally or has it been uh, kind of awkward or what, what's he like in this position? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I, I felt pretty similar to what you did whenever he was hired, um, you know, just moving past the X's and O's. I kind of thought like, I don't know if Josh's personality is, is going to fit the expectations of this job. I mean, it's, the, the media scrutiny that you're under at Tennessee is just, it's next level. Um, it, it's, <laughs> it's, it's probably one of the most demanding jobs in the country in terms of the scrutiny that you face. And, and yeah, I mean, Josh is not, you know, the most charismatic guy in front of the, the cameras. He's a likable guy, but, you know, right. in terms of that big personality, but I will say like in the preseason, you know, leading up to this year, I thought he, he did a lot of smart things. Number one, he made his staff very available to the media. And I thought that was a smart move. Like, does that help you win games come fall? Probably not. But after three seasons in which Jeremy Pruitt, you know, kind of followed the Nick Saban model of, of, of almost never letting his assistants talk to the media. Um, Heupel made a smart move because he does have some good personalities on that staff. Yeah. And I think he knows it. And I think that's another way to kind of tell the, the story of the program. And so he put those guys out front and center. I thought Josh did a good job in the preseason of, of kind of, kind of dialing it up a notch as, uh-huh. as we discussed, you know, he's not a real natural in that environment, but I thought, you know, he made a pretty strong effort um, of, of doing the media circuit of, 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 uh, of, you know, trying to dial up his, his personality uh, a notch a little bit, be charismatic, maybe more so than what comes naturally to him here in the season. It's been very much down to business, you know, his press conferences, you don't learn a ton. It's very right. business-like. Uh, you can be kind of in and out in, in 15 minutes and not feel like you, you know, there are times where I, um, whether I'm there in person or t- tuning in on Zoom to his, his pressers, you know, it's almost like after that 15 minutes, it's like, I don't remember one thing he said, <laughs> which may be a shame on me, but I think it's more so like, that's the way Hypo likes it. It's like kind of just uh, that monotone drone on for 15 right. minutes and not really say much of note and, and he's in and out. But yeah. yeah, I mean, overall, I think you can see his personality maybe has evolved a bit as a head coach than what he was as a coordinator. I think he gets that there's, 
you know, more things that, that matter within his reach maybe than, than when he was a coordinator. But yeah, I mean, certainly he's, he's not going to be bringing the house down. Yeah. I mean, he's a smart guy. There's no doubt about that. He gets it. He's been around coaching. I mean, all those years spent with Bob Stoops, you, you have to soak up some, uh, some, just some ideas on how to, how to run the job for sure. I remember there was a press conference, one of his weekly deals at Missouri. It might've been his second year. We'd get him for like 15 minutes on a Tuesday and it was up at the podium and he, he just walked into the room, like decided I'm not going to say anything interesting that anyone's going to use here, but he did it all with a smile. He, he took every question, uh-huh. never a jerk about it, but also just, it wasn't worth the, the time that was spent recording it on the tape. And as he walked out of the room, I was kind of sitting off to the side. He patted me on the back and said, good luck using any of that. And, <laughs> and it was like, he was kind of in on his own joke. And right. that, that just kind of defined who he is like never a jerk you know, yeah. um, very friendly, um, but, but wasn't going to give you much at all. Yeah. It was like, there was going to always be that layer between you and our, our, you know, the media and in a sense, the fans, and then what he has got up his sleeve, but you know, that doesn't work as a head coach, like you said, especially at a program like that, that's just so visible and such demands for your attention, your time and all that. Yeah, I can remember I only covered him the, the first season there uh, when he was the offensive coordinator in Missouri, and then I was on to Tennessee uh, yeah. in that second season. But at that first season, you know, it was when everybody at, at Missouri was was kind of adjusting to this new offense and the tempo and all the RPOs. And I remember I wrote, like, this big piece on, on the RPO nature of, of his offense, and I asked Josh um, something about, like, can you explain what goes into an RPO or, or how that play develops? And, and he said, well, you can either run it or you can pass it and I kind of thought like I'm no football expert Josh but the play is called a run pass option like I think I got that far you know uh, it's like all right well thanks yeah well thanks a lot Josh yeah I did uh-huh. I, I remember you writing that story and it, it, you were able to uh it, it was well done considering uh <laughs> he didn't play much of a role in it no he did not uh, hey I just want to get your take on on I guess the SEC East you know at large you got to see Florida up close I was like, everyone went into the season thinking, okay, this is Georgia's to lose. Absolutely. Does Florida have a chance here? I mean, I think we learned a lot about them in the loss to Alabama. Um, you know, Georgia's going to have to lose here at some point for Florida to have a chance unless they just win the head to head. But man, what, what do you think of the Gators? Yeah, I, I was came away pretty impressed. Um, I was down at the swamp for back-to-back games there. Uh, I was at that Alabama game and then was yeah. at Florida, Florida, Tennessee this week. And uh, certainly came away thinking that Georgia's still the favorite in the East, but uh, yeah, that game in Jacksonville could be pretty interesting. I I continue to be impressed by Dan Mullen as an offensive mind. I know Missouri fans probably bristle a little bit uh, when they hear the name Dan Mullen after after last year, but just in terms of an, an offensive mind and a play caller, like most coaches say they adapt their system to the personnel and most coaches I think lie when they say that whereas Dan Mullen I think he truly year after year adapts what he does offensively to what he has I mean last year you know it was like uh they almost didn't even need running backs they never handed the ball off it was a Kyle Trash show this year it's much more of that like Tim Tebow style offense with Emory Jones um you know as a true dual threat Uh, he played fantastic against Tennessee on on Saturday um, and then when they get Anthony Richardson back, you know, the, the, the quarterback we saw through the first two weeks as, as the number two quarterback for Florida, I think they'll go back to a true two quarterback system. Uh, I thought that defense, you know, what really impressed me in the Alabama game was that on both sides of the ball at the line of scrimmage, 
Florida was winning for the last three quarters of that game. Like that's not something you often see when teams play Bama is, is winning at the line of scrimmage, uh, both on offense and defense. That's, you know, I think coming into the season with Florida, a lot of the focus was how do they replace Trask and Pitts and all those playmakers, but really Florida's defense had to get better. That was, that was the big thing. You know, that defense was kind of trash last year, honestly, to go opposite of that offense. And, and the defense does look, you know, at least pretty serviceable. What about over in the West? I mean, Alabama's Alabama. They look maybe a little more vulnerable than they have been in the past, which, you know, it's, it's, they're still Alabama. Can Ole Miss give them a game this week? I mean, I, what yeah, do you think? I, I really think so because, you know, when you look at the ingredients to beat Alabama, a lot of things got to go your way. A lot has to go right, et cetera. But um, I think when you have a really high-level quarterback, you have a chance. I mean, you look at some of the quarterbacks to beat – Alabama during the Nick Saban era, you know, Tim Tebow's beat him, Cam Newton's beat him, Johnny Manziel, um, Joe Burrow, Deshaun Watson, we're, you know, now not ever, not everybody fits that profile, but by and large, you need a household name at quarterback to have a chance against Alabama. And it certainly helps if your quarterback can run it a little bit too. Uh, And, and Ole Miss has that. I mean, I think Matt Corral is playing as good as, as any quarterback in the country um he was a pretty exciting guy last year with his his arm and his mobility but he didn't he didn't always make smart choices I didn't think he always looked like a mature quarterback last year just in terms of his his playing not the way he carried himself or anything but the way he played I didn't think he always made mature choices I think that's different this year um I, I saw him play in person there in Atlanta and Louisville in the season opener came away really impressed I thought this looked like a poised guy you know a veteran guy a guy who's going to put his position uh, his offense in position to succeed on top of an arm that's as good as any arm in, in college football. So I think when you have that at quarterback and the defense at least looks a little better, I mean, it's not like Ole Miss is going to come out and hold Bama to 20 points. I don't right. think so. Bama's going to score. Uh, but I think Ole Miss is going to score too. So yeah, I think they got a shot. I really think, you know, coming into the year, I thought Ole Miss was going to be pretty good, but I, I like most people thought A&M might be the biggest threat to Bama uh, with what they returned. That game would, is in College Station against Alabama. But it's been interesting, you know, that the, the SEC West pecking order behind Alabama right now, I feel like it's, it's Ole Miss, Arkansas. And I right. would have thought that, especially with Arkansas. Right. Yeah, I was going to ask you, I don't know how much you've seen of the Hogs, but, I mean, are, 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 should we be taking them seriously? I mean, they, they've beaten Texas. They've beaten Texas A&M. Two as quality wins as, as anybody's had in those games – they've really dictated how they've gone. They, they weren't flukish at all with what, you know, Sam Pittman and Barry Odom put together on the field. Yeah, I think I was kind of a holdout for a while. I was not ready to give in and, and say Arkansas is legit. Even after that Texas game, I thought, you know, impressive win, but how good is Texas? Is this just a one-off? But I'm ready to probably uh, be in that camp where these guys are, are legit. I mean, I don't know if they're beat Alabama legit, right. but I think they're like legit could finish – uh, you know, middle of the pack, maybe even top three in the SEC West. Uh, can they dominate a team like Georgia and Alabama up front? I don't know, but we're seeing them do that, you know, these last few weeks now um, in a way that maybe you would expect from a team coached by Sam Pittman. Like it, it really feels like a team that has taken on an ide- the identity of its head coach. Like a lot of times we see, we get a feel for what the head coach's identity is, right. but, but sometimes the team doesn't really match the identity of their coach. I mean, this is a case where it's like, if you know Sam Pittman at all, or, or just, you know, know his background and then you watched watch Arkansas play, it's like, 
oh yeah, I totally get how that's a team coached by Sam Pittman. And right. yeah, in terms of Barry Odom, um, you know, I feel like maybe we're seeing that this is a guy who's just really well suited for that co-pilot seat. I mean, if you go back to what he did as a defensive coordinator at Memphis, even in, in a year at Missouri, and now he's doing as a defensive coordinator at, at Arkansas. I mean, there, there's no knock on the guy as, as a defensive coordinator. I mean, obviously he didn't recruit well enough, I think at Missouri to get it done there. Um, and you know, that experience didn't go the way he liked, would have liked as a head coach, but there's, there's no shame in, in being a really good defensive coordinator. And he's one of the highest paid defensive coordinators in the country right now for a reason you're seeing it on the field. Um, yeah, Arkansas does kind of like this drop eight system a lot of times that, that Ole Miss actually is starting to use now. And I think it, it gives quarterbacks some, some trouble when they look out there and, and see eight guys and in coverage. And, and I wonder if we might see some more teams start doing that with as, as much as this is kind of a, a, a quarterback's world and a passing world in college football. But uh, yeah, I, th I think uh, what Arkansas has done and Sam Pittman have done, it, it sort of eats away a little bit at the argument of, uh, well, you need a lot of patience with these coaches. You got to, you got to give them a, a long leash, a lot of time. Like Sam Pittman came in and inherited a terrible situation, a team that had gone four and 20 in the two years before his arrival. And all of a sudden he's four and zero for the first time since 2003. Yeah, it's crazy. It, Odom's trajectory is really going to be interesting here because if, if they end up being as good as what they look, they are right now, you know, he's going to get head coaching offers this, this off season. He's going to have to ask himself, is it worth going to some group of five place that it's a major overhaul uh, where maybe you lose two, three years to start and you're kind of back at square one with your career, or do you want to stick this out at a place like Arkansas or turn it into a coordinator job at Alabama or LSU or somewhere else where you make a little bit more money and be, be the best coordinator in the country. Um, you know, he's, I think he's going to have plenty of opportunities if, if they keep trending this direction for sure. Yeah. It, it is interesting. Cause it's one of those scenarios um, where you feel like, not that Barry Odom would ever ask me for advice. I don't know why he would do that. He's, he's doing well for himself, but like, you know, from the outside looking in, I look at Barry Odom kind of the way I look at uh, Lane Kiffin at Ole Miss. Like I think if Lane Kiffin keeps winning. He might, you know, who's going to come knocking on his door. And in both cases, I think like there's something to be said for just staying where you're at for a moment. Like you're having a lot of success. People are eating out of the palm of your hand. Uh, just keep doing, keep doing what you're doing and, and uh, cash those paychecks. But uh you know, like, like a lot of people in the industry, I'm sure there's, there's uh, thoughts of, of onward and upward. So that is going to be interesting to see, because I agree with you, Barry's going to have um, opportunities at, at hand if uh, things keep going this way for Arkansas. Well, as long as Jimmy Sexton is still his agent, there will always be opportunities. Some, some may be more no realistic than others. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, that, if only we could all have Jimmy Sexton as our, as our agent, life would be made. Well, Blake, you don't need an agent. You're doing all right yourself. Uh, really enjoy the coverage. And, you know, this new gig, I think, is perfect for you to kind of, um, you know, share your thoughts on the league and, and the stories you've been doing, the columns you've been doing have been excellent. We're, we're really glad you could join us this week to talk a little bit about the balls and, and look around at the league as a whole and, and where things stand after a month. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks for having me, Dave. It's been good catching up. All right. Well, hey, for our uh, subscribers, um, Keep tuning in every week. We're going to keep the podcast going. Uh, if you're not a subscriber yet, go to uh, Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and look for the Eye on the Tigers podcast and go ahead and click subscribe. Leave us a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, for, uh, for Ben Fredrickson, this is Dave Matter. Thanks again to our special guest, Blake Topmeyer. We'll be back next week.